Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. November the 1st, 2021. Good morning, good morning, good morning. In case you missed it, yesterday, October the 31st, was not only All Hallows' Eve, it was Reformation Day. Uh, and for those, of, uh, for those of us who are Protestants, Reformation Day is a significant day. But actually, for everybody, Reformation Day is a significant day. Because the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, is one of those decisive or pivotal events that actually made the world we live in today. And it's one of those things that took place in the course of human history that then altered the course of every other day uh, since. And so I just thought we'd give pause this morning to to talk about the ways, a few of the ways in which the Protestant Reformation, or what is known as the Reformation, um, makes the world we live in today, reshaped the world in ways that... Um, are still significant, are very significant today. So Luther wasn't really trying to uh, reshape the world. He was trying to save the world. Luther and his followers perceived that the the end time was drawing near, that the church was uh, leading people uh, away from the truth, and that it was time to um, it was time to see the hierarchy of Roman Catholicism respond to the truth of the Word of God. I mean, that was really what they were trying to do, right? His conscience, he says, was captive to the Word of God, no higher authority. Um, Certainly the Pope was not seen by Luther as a higher authority than the Word of God and the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Uh, No bishop, no king was of higher authority than the Word of God. Uh, And there's a democratization that happens in terms of power in in the act of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church that changes actually the way people thought about themselves. People saw the world and therefore everything in it and their power within it. Um, an, An era of what I will describe as free inquiry really dawned with Martin Luther. Not necessarily, you know, what we have now as free speech, Um, because what Luther was really driving for was a belief in the truth that would inspire people to then look into every other thing, like examine what authorities are telling you based on what you, through your own free inquiry, know to be the truth that sets men free, that set men free, sets men, mm -hmm. the truth that sets men free. I can say that sentence. Um, So free inquiry might be something that we have as a gift of the Protestant Reformation. Another thing would be democracy. If you think of the way that Martin Luther, as just, you know, frankly, a pretty regular guy, defied uh, the hierarchy of his day, both in the church and in the secular world, um, Luther really democratized information 
and he democratized um, our understanding of how institutions and nations should function. And and that and maybe then the, a third gift um, would be limited government. And so the the challenge that institutions are facing today and governments are facing today is a protesting people, a people who feel like they can ask questions and they can raise concerns and they can stand up and they can take their stand and they can say, here I stand, and they can have a voice. So, like it or not, we live as not only heirs, but recipients of and practitioners of a Protestant ethic. So, there you go. I know it's a day late, uh, but I thought I would spend a moment reflecting on the Protestant Reformation. Yesterday was Reformation Day. It was also All Hallows' Eve. Oh, yeah. On the culture war front, the only thing I have to raise is the Twix ad, which I won't get into, but you can see it on YouTube if you want. Sheridan Voicey is up next. We'll be right back. Sheridan Voicey is a BBC presenter. He's also the author of Reflect with Sheridan. You can find him at SheridanVoicey.com. Good morning, sir. Well, or is it still morning? It is. It is still morning. It is. Yeah, we've gone to daylight saving. And it's funny, you know, just that one hour difference. And I find myself already tired at what is now 10 past 11 in the morning, uh, my time. So, yeah, we're still we're still we're still in the morning zone together. Finally. So when we talk with you the next time, we will have also fallen back because we have not fallen back yet, which I find curious that you are ahead mm-hmm. of us in the falling back. Um, and so there will be one hour greater difference when we fall after we fall back. So right now you and I are one hour closer together than we are this one week. That's right. This That's one week. right. Okay. This is- a strange thing, mm. isn't it, with, so with time? You know, in the UK, we're ahead of you. And of course, you know, Australia is ahead of both of us. And the old joke goes, if the end of the world comes, don't worry. It's already tomorrow in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> now people's minds are just blowing and they're just trying to That's figure right. all of that out. All right, Sheridan, <laughs> let's um, let's talk about lessons that you've learned from your father. I have been um, reading some of these devotionals that uh, that you have been um, posting related to things you learned from your dad. Um, let's let's talk about regular people and regular Christians and the things that uh, that we can learn from one another. Yeah, well, I just lost my dad. Um, we we just four Fridays ago, you know, we had mm. his funeral. And when I say we, I mean my family and I. But it wasn't with my brother and I actually being present. So because of COVID and because of lockdowns and because of um, closed borders and things like that, uh, I wasn't able to fly to Australia to be there for my dad's funeral, which was very, very difficult. But thankfully, um, my mum has got a wonderful church around her and they have stood in in place of me, eldest son, 
Mm-hmm. And also my my younger brother, who couldn't get there, even though he's in Australia, because they had local lockdowns, they weren't able to come up. Um, so it's been a very strange time. And of course, there's the grief of just losing your dad. But it has been a wonderful time of reflecting on him, on his life, on the lessons that he's passed down to me. And this is the thing, uh, Carmen, you know, we are surrounded, both of our cultures are surrounded, we're immersed in this idea that to live a legitimate, significant, meaningful life, then somehow you've got to have some kind of public platform, (laughs) public recognition. You've got to have, you know, a gazillion followers on Instagram. You've got to have best-selling books, radio shows, dare we, you know, we both talk about it, even though that's the, the media that we're in. You need nothing like that to live a significant, important life. My dad was just an everyday person who followed Christ and who looked after his family, sometimes spending years in a job that he didn't necessarily like to provide for his family. And so I guess that's the starting point for me and just reflecting on his life. He, He gave me a lot of really wonderful lessons simply by being who he is without having any great fame or stardom. Let's always remember that. It's so easy to fall into, you know, that kind of worldly idea that uh, I'm not going to be significant unless I write the book or unless I have some some sort of, you know, viral tweet or incredibly well followed Facebook page. Uh, None of that matters in the eyes of God. Thank you. Um, Thank you for that. Not just important reminder to each of of us, but um, a very important honoring of your dad. I think that one of the things that I have been noting, um, particularly in this season where everyone seems much more comfortable talking about death because everyone has lost someone in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, during the pandemic and everyone has um, had a hard time being present in ways that we are, we have grown to expect that we can be present for things and events and um, so thank you. Thank you for your willingness to talk about um, this incredible transition in your own life, um, but also in the, you know, in the life of your dad, um, because mm. we acknowledge that as a believer, you know, he still lives. He yet lives. He lives again. He lives more fully than he ever lived. And that's really hard for us to imagine, but also it is a great comfort. And so when we come back, I'd Let's examine that a little bit. Let's examine how different it is to grieve the death of a person who we know is in Christ um, versus the way that unbelieving people grieve. Could we talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that? Yeah, would love to. Okay. We'll be right back with Sheridan Voicey. All right, well, because uh, we're past Halloween, we are now uh, quickly approaching Christmas. So let me just invite you to consider uh, joining us in the Prepare Him Room devotional. It is written by my colleague, Susie Larson. And so you can actually visit us at MyFaithRadio.com. You can enter the Prepare Him Room uh, daily Advent devotional giveaway that we're doing. Um, so check that out. Um, Sheridan, let's, um, let's continue our conversation about grief and loss and life. Um, Not everyone experienced the death of your dad or experiences the death of loved ones in the same way. Can you reflect with us on that? 
Yeah, you know, this has been a really big discovery for me, I think. Um, I don't know if you've lost anybody really close to you, Carmen. Um, losing my dad, this is the first time I've lost somebody really, really close. Mm. This is all new terrain for me, emotionally, mm. spiritually, the whole lot. Um and, you know, uh, especially being an Australian male, um, you know, we're not prone to cry very much. But, you know, it took me about a day and then suddenly the, the you know, the floodgates opened and finally the tears just really flowed. And I had about an hour of just sobbing. And, and of course, I've had other times where I have cried as well. And I've had dreams as well, dreams about my father, which I think has all been part of the grief process um, for me. You know, we each grieve dif differently. What's been really interesting, though, is to see the difference between um, our experience, uh, the, the, the Christian members of the family, our experience of grieving, compared to some other family members who actually are, are not following God at the moment. And it's been a very different experience for them. I think of one family member for whom the tears came very quickly, and then they kept on going for hours and hours on end, for days and days on end. Uh, because for them, dad was now gone forever. There was no change, no turning back. He had completely lost this special person in his life forever. And a friend of mine asked me just a few days ago, he said, how has this experience of losing your dad um, maybe uh, clarified your theology of hope? <laughs> you know, we all have a theology, and, and by that I simply mean an understanding of hope. And I said, well, it's helped me to see that it's really much more deeply ingrained in me than I ever thought it was. You know, we can have an idea about heaven and the new creation and resurrection and us, you know, being able to see our loved ones in Christ again uh, at a future time. I didn't realize actually how embedded in me it already was because my mm. experience wasn't like my unbelieving relatives. It was, I'm grieving and this is sad, but there's a safety net. I don't fall, fall the whole way down to the ground because in the back of my mind, I know this is not the end. You know, this is not the end of the story. This is simply the end of a chapter. For dad's story, there's a whole brand new book to begin for him. And the same thing for our lives with him and our stories with him as well. I used to read that verse in First Thessalonians chapter 4, you know, when Paul says, you know, we do not uh, grieve like the world grieves. That's my paraphrase. I used to read that as, don't grieve like the world grieves. You know, we, we've got the hope of resurrection. I've actually come to realize it's actually when you've been walking with Christ for a while, you don't grieve as the world grieves because you have that little safety net. It's in the back of your mind that I am going to see dad again. And this hurts. And I hate the fact that I don't have him around me and I can't ask him questions. I can't talk to him. I can't hear him recommend films to me. I can't, you know, you even miss the annoying things. But I will have him back again. We will be brought back in wonderful rendezvous in the future. And, you know, I think that's a, that's a hope that the, the, the world sometimes doesn't understand. Sometimes it's misunderstood as being careless. Uh, why aren't you crying more? Well, it's because I haven't hit rock bottom because I've got the safety net. This isn't the end. And I, I, mm. I think that's something for us all to reflect on. Mm. So Sheridan, um, I lost my dad when I was uh, when I was fifteen, and so when you talk mm -hmm. about um, when you talk about it being fresh and new, and uh, and and I have a, a long experience of 
uh, of knowing that there are waves of grief yet coming. Um, and I mm-hmm. can say that to you as a brother in Christ and know, and, and, and yet also say, you know, the anchor holds like it's, yeah. the, there is, um, there is this reality that we find ourselves in, um, in the low point of, uh, of a series of waves and we don't really ever know when the next one is coming and they do get further apart. I mean, I can attest to that. Um, but they're real and they still come and it's because our love is deep and abiding and we miss that person. Um, and they miss things here that we wish they had been here for. And I think that, um, you know, there's that ongoing reality of real grief, real longing, we don't lose our humanity when we become Christians. Um, you know, I think we become more fully human. And, mm-hmm. you know, and in that we, we grieve so deeply. Um, but again, not as those uh, who have no hope. So thank you for that testimony as well. I want to talk with you. One of the things that you shared with me was on the topic of forgiveness. And because we're going to be talking later this morning with Gary Chapman about um, teenagers and, and the, the things they need most from us, I just found this conversation about forgiveness that you shared so amazing. Your dad would drive in the middle of the night to pick you up when you had missed the last train from the city um, and and talk, just talk about talk about his willingness to forgive and, and the impact yes. that had on you as a teenager. Yeah. So like many teenagers um, in my later teens, I was spending many a Friday night and a Saturday night. Indeed, you know, in the city, I grew up in the suburbs. And so I had to take the the one hour train into the city and I was going to nightclubs. I wasn't a Christian at that stage. And I was doing all these things. Um, And I had to catch the 12.55 a.m. train back. That was the last train back to my suburb of Cleveland. And if I missed that, there were no more trains for five hours. There were no buses. I didn't have the the money for a one-hour taxi fare. Uh, That was it. Well, many a time, because I was enjoying myself so much, I would be racing through the city to try and make it to that 12.55 a.m. train in time. And I would jump on at 12.54. Well, of course, the day came when I left it too late. And I rushed down onto the platform just in time to watch the train (laughs) leave away. And it, it didn't have me on it. And so I thought through all my options and uh, realized I had to go and drag my sorry feet to the nearest payphone and make the phone call of death and uh, wake my parents up in the middle of the night. And so that happened. Um, Dad woke up very groggily, and I said, oh, I'm so sorry, Dad. I've missed the last train. Can you come and pick me up? And, you know, he wasn't happy about it, but at the same time, you know, he put the phone down, and an hour later, he pulled up in front of the train station, and I jumped in, and I said, I'm so sorry. You know, I won't do it again. Well, wouldn't you believe, Carmen, the very next week, (laughs) I mixed the train again, 12.55, running down there. There it is. It's pulling away. And again, I realized I've got no other option. I do not want to sleep on the street. I do not want to sleep underneath a bridge. I have to call dad again. And so I called him and he was, of course, not very happy, but he still came. I got into the car this time and I said, I am so so sorry. And he looked at me and he said, okay, but don't do this again. And that was (laughs) enough to make sure that I never did it again. And when you look in the context of, of Jesus, when, you know, his disciples were saying, how many times should I forgive? Uh, And Jesus says, look, if a person comes to you and seven times in a day sins against you and seven times in a day comes back to you and says, I repent, well, then you forgive. 
And I got a little glimpse of that in dad. He didn't berate me. He wasn't happy, but he wasn't, he didn't berate me. And in fact, I think that both drives home, we moved the conversation on to how the night went and you know what, what was going on. And, and it was, he wasn't, he wasn't making me feel it. He forgave. And then we moved on. And I think there is a wonderful lesson that I can then pass on to other people, even if they do that same terrible, wretched thing to me two times in a row, three times in a row, maybe even seven times in a day. It's such a wonderful um, testimony about uh, about your dad and about the power of forgiveness, but of also this lesson in parenting, um, because you, it, had he not come, right, and something had happened to you, had you not had the relationship that, you know, that said to you, I can call my dad and he will come, um, mm-hmm. and something bad had happened to you, he would have never been able to forgive himself. And so I think that if we are fast to forgive, um, we don't risk the the circumstance in which we couldn't bear the weight of the grief of having not gone and picked up our kid in the middle of the night the second time, the third time, the 10th time, the 20th time, the 50th time, whatever. Um, and uh, I I know in my own life friends who have been willing over the course of years to continue to go and get their kid from ever worse circumstances, you know, but eventually the kid reaches rock bottom, right? And the parent still goes and gets them. And that's the, you know, that's that prodigal moment of the reversal of of behavior, that correction with forgiveness that ultimately then you know, produces a, a real change of heart and life in the other individual. And I just, so thank you for the testimony. It's a powerful reminder. It's a wonderful celebration of the ongoing um, impact of your dad on you and who you are. And then as that redounds to the rest of us. So thank you, um, Sheridan, and blessings um, blessings on you in this season of grief um, as you walk through this valley um, of the shadow of death. I just, I'm, I'm celebrating that you're doing it with the Good Shepherd and just know that our hearts and prayers are with you as well. Thank you so much, Carmen. That means a lot. I really appreciate Ab- that. Absolutely. That's Sheridan Voicey. Uh, he, you can hear him on the BBC. You can also visit with him at SheridanVoicey.com. We'll be right back. All righty, today the U.S. Supreme Court is going to hear oral arguments in the Texas abortion uh, law case. And tomorrow, there are going to be local and statewide elections across the country, one of particular interest in Virginia. Professor Adam Carrington joins us next. Every day, hundreds of orphan children find safety and love from parents who choose to adopt them. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I believe that adopting a child is one of the most sacrificial things anyone can do. So in honor of National Adoption Month, I want to read from Romans chapter 8. Paul said that Christians have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. When you adopt a child, you model God's sacrificial love for his children. Today, I want to applaud and thank those who have taken on the God-honoring role of adoptive parent. 
you are among today's most brave and selfless heroes. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Adam, uh, Paul said you were ready. Are you ready? Absolutely. Let's go. <laughs> now, see, you say let's go, and my mind, my mind, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I can't say it on air because I'll get in all kinds of trouble. But the let's go, um, the let's go language of the day is a challenging language, so we'll just leave that at that. All right, let's talk about the Virginia election Super duper interesting taking place tomorrow um, doesn't I don't think looks I don't think it portends good things for those who are um, hoping that the Democrats are um, on the rise. This. Yeah. Tell me what your assessment is of the Virginia election, but the gubernatorial election in Virginia. Yeah, what's made, made what's made this interesting is that it started off as looking like a fairly generic election based on the fact that Virginia is trending more and more Democrat. And I think you've got a combination of Terry McAuliffe, who's running for the Democrat side, is very much connected with corruption and 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 is 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 not the most popular man in Virginia but he still looked like he was going to do fine but his his opponent Youngkin has uh, really surged and i think that you've got two factors to keep in mind with that one is as president biden and the democrats nationally have soured uh national news is especially big in Virginia since its its biggest markets are in DC uh, and the other is I think uh, McAuliffe's uh, statement that I'm sure many listeners have heard of where he basically said that parents shouldn't have control over their children's education issues like that have really electrified uh, the, the base of the Republican Party in Virginia, which seemed fairly dormant. And it's also uh, made uh, uh, a lot of persuadable voters uh, turned off to the Democrats. And I think it, 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 there's certainly local, therefore, election issues going on. But if it, the fact that it's this close and the fact that it looks very possible the Republican now will win really shows, I think, a souring of the national prospects for the Democratic Party and hope for the Republicans as far as the congressional elections next year. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. We had talked about it a few weeks ago, and I think it still is the case that it, it's much more of a bellwether than I think many of the other uh, smaller races that are out there uh, going on Tuesday as well. So I have no political science degree whatsoever, but here is my uh, suburban mom assessment. Persuadable voters um, care about three things, security, education, and what I will call home economics, gas and groceries. Um, and so I think that on those three fronts, uh, tomorrow we will have a Republican governor elected in Virginia. That'll be my um, – that'll be my – prediction. I mean, you know, I could be wrong. I've been wrong about lesser things. Um, All right. Let's talk about the legislative agenda um, of the Biden administration. Uh, I feel like nothing is happening, but tell me differently. (laughs) Well, uh, uh, there there is a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing, as, as Macbeth might say. It's 
continues to show the the big fractures within the Democratic Party as they've as they've got gained suburban voters who tend to be more economically and socially moderate. They've had trouble placating that side with the the very ideological base that really is trying to drive through some of the more extreme elements of the of the uh, of the, the the different packages. Uh, they have scheduled a vote for Tuesday. That's, I guess, the latest concrete update on both bills, the reconciliation bill and the other larger, uh, more more ideological bill. And I, I, it was, I was interested in reading the news reports. What was said was all the different factions of the Democratic Party agreed to that timeline. What they didn't say was that the every faction agreed to actually voting. And again, I think it's 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 strange here. Again, that the Democratic Party is sort of caught in a catch-22 uh, of their own making. That on one hand, um, uh, because of their falling prospects nationally, for for some of the reasons I mentioned, definitely Carmen, for some of the reasons you're mentioning, they're they they that might say go go small, go for the broader ideas go for the the ones that would be more agreed on for a broader base and remember that you have a very tiny majority to to push these things through but there's an element of the more hardline uh progressive coalition that is saying well we're gonna lose anyway so let's go big and get what we can out of it and i think those two things are really tear those two ideal those two strategies are tearing at the party and so i i We'll see if anything gets passed, but at this point, uh, it, it, it's I'll believe it when I see it based on how, how how much of a struggle it's been to even get to this point. Well, I think about people like Nancy Pelosi in particular um, and the, her sense of of her own historic ability to move th- things through and get things accomplished in in some uh, at some level just by the sheer force of her personal will, um, that's just not in place anymore. Like, we now have a generation of progressives who honestly, honestly see no uh, value in, in quote-unquote, authority figures, even when those authority figures are on their own side of something. It's just a very yeah, different—I think it's a very different day. And I think it's it. Some of it is generational, as far as just the population in, in in overall. But I would also say it's a problem that's gotten even worse with Congress. Congress has become way less about legislating and 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 the art of legislating, which is writing bills that have real punch that are that are pulled together as part of a moderate coalition. And instead, a lot of it is platforming. It's 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 a place where your own media presence can be put forward, where even bills themselves are less about what's actually in the details and more about what does it signal to your 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 base or to to your 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 social media account or other things like that. And and that's really toxic uh, uh uh, to Congress, because Congress was all supposed to be about deliberation. That's what it originally was made to do. And I, I think Pelosi comes from a generation that at least held on to getting something done. But I think for this new generation, getting something done is getting a lot of clicks and getting fundraising going and therefore having a media presence that these kind of stances actually help. 
and and I and I think that again is 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 toxic for the institution as well. Yeah, and I think all of that is tied to the relentless need to raise money. Um, and the fact that they're always in an election cycle and therefore they're beholden to donors of two kinds, large dollar donors and large numbers of donors. And in both cases, um, you know, they're they're political captives and it's it's a huge challenge. All right. Let's um, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, let's talk about Rep- Representative Adam Kinzinger's announcement that he's, quote, retiring from Congress. I'm not sure he's he's retiring from Congress, but I'm not I'm pretty sure he's not retiring. So uh, I'd like to talk about him next. We are talking with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington. Um, all right, Adam, uh, remind people who Adam Kinzinger is and then tell us what's going on. So he is a Republican Congress uh, House member in Congress from a suburban Illinois district and has been very outspoken, increasingly so in the last probably year or so, a uh, critic of, of, of President Trump, but especially related to the the uh, January 6th uh, uh, riot and, 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 uh, and election fraud claims and other things. He's been on the opposite side of the base of the party. He has been appointed to the commission and is serving on it that is uh, investigating the events of January 6th. And he has announced recently that he is not going to seek re-election in the primary or the general election for his, his district in Congress. And I think there's sort of two things going on here. The, the less known one is that is that it looks like with Illinois losing a, at least one congressional district that his seat was going to be squeezed out by Democrats redistricting in Illinois. But it was also pretty clear that wherever he could try to run, that he had very little chance of making it in the primary because it is, uh, again, a, another instance of a, a man that was in his views and in his articulation and his presentation was very much in the center of the Republican Party just uh, six, seven years ago. And with the, the move of the party under President Trump to be more populist, uh, the move of it to be more economically nationalist, and also just the dispositional difference um, in and, and, and it's it's tied to the president former president and the election fraud claims. You put all that together that uh, it, it, he just it, he is not a, a part of the the ground of the Republican Party anymore. And it seems pretty clear that he's he's leaving regardless of what he says to avoid an election defeat. And I think it's a continuing to show that the parties are reconfiguring themselves along some of these lines and lines we've talked about before on this show. All right. So there's a future first leadership pack and there's a country website. Um, and I don't think he's done. So there you go. That's my two cents <laughs> in the matter. He might be done with uh, serving this particular district in Congress, but I don't think Adam Kinzinger's done. The question is, does he have a future in the Republican Party in elected office? That's that's ah. going to be the longer term question. Or is he going to go the way of a of a Paul Ryan, who who seems to be very active in D.C., very active in the political environment, but not in elected office? And and so that that will be the interesting. What's interesting. the future for men and women like this? Uh, and, and that is going to say a lot about the future of the two parties as well. 
Okay, let's pivot and do something super edifying, which is to talk about the Psalms and political wisdom, uh, because you just taught a one-week course um, on that. So tell us a little bit about the Psalms and what we need to know about what they have to say about political wisdom. Yes, and this class wasn't meant to say that the ultimate point of the Psalms isn't to point to Christ and the coming of Christ, that they aren't meant uh, first and foremost to be the songs of God's church and to be another way of us knowing the gospel and salvation. But it was also to say that in the way it discusses life and the way that it looks at the aspects of human life, sorrow and pain and joy and gladness, that an element of that is our living in political communities. And that one of the great claims it makes is that God, the Lord reigns, or that God is king. And that is actually open Psalm 93, 97, and 99. And the burden, at least of of the class we had, and I think we were able to really show this, is that in looking at how God is king, we learn a lot about human rule, because humans are exercising God's dominion in the earth, and we learn a lot about the limitations of that rule. So on one hand, you have Psalm 72 saying, give the king your righteousness and justice, O Lord, and talking about how God, in his righteous and just judgment, shows how we should be righteous and just, not showing partiality to favored groups, following the moral and just law that we see in nature and God's revelation, um, and and also that it shows the limitations of that rule, that when Psalm 146 famously says, put not your trust in princes, it's not that we shouldn't believe in government or believe that those governors should rule according to God's truth and in God's stead. It's that um, ultimately they will fail. Uh, they're not eternal. They're not uh, perfect, and that there are, and that therefore, as much as uh, this kingdom, we look to justice and we look to truth, because God still is on the throne here. At the same time, uh, the Psalms show a hope toward the return of the real King, and that at that point we'll actually have true justice and peace on earth. But that we can fight and push for it here, seeing the Psalms as a picture of of how best to do that. Okay, so all the king's horses and all the king's men comes to mind when you talk about like where we put our our trust politically and uh, and who we follow. And because my mind works the way it does, I am hoping that your next lecture or course is on nursery rhymes and political wisdom. Because Humpty Dumpty, <laughs> I, right, it immediately came yeah. to mind when you talk about all the king's horses and all the king's men. That's like my my sad addled brain just goes to Humpty Dumpty. It doesn't go to Psalm 146. I, it should, but it doesn't. <laughs> well, there, there, is, there are wisdom in nursery rhymes. And, and I actually, uh, for my politics and literature class, read uh, the class at the end, Yertle the Turtle, if anyone knows <gasps> the Dr. Seuss I love story. Yertle the Turtle. Yes. What, is and, there political and, wisdom and, in Yertle the Turtle? Well, absolutely. He says that Yertle the Turtle, for those who don't know, uh, he, he, he thinks he can be king of all he can see. So he keeps stacking turtles underneath him to be king of more and more. And two things that that points out. One, he wants to be even king over the moon and the stars, which if anything, if, if that's anything, is a repeat of the fall, saying we want to be like God and 
sinfulness. And the other is um, the turtles finally collapse under him because is made that it, maybe turtles should be free and rule themselves like everyone else rather than be tyrannically ruled the way he did them. So you see an argument to not be God as a ruler, uh, that you can't ultimately be God, and you see an argument that for the freedom and dignity of everyone in, in, in how the, the rest of the turtles are vindicated and not being tyrannized. <laughs> of Yurtle the Turtle. I think it's actually got a lot there. Okay, I feel I feel like there's a future in nursery rhymes and political wisdom. I just yeah, I because now you're speaking a language, right, that everybody totally 100% gets. Um and I think a good reminder that there is worldview everywhere. Um in there is worldview communicated certainly in the Psalms um and there's worldview created or uh, communicated in nursery rhymes and there's worldview communicated in the headline news of the day. Um and the decisions people are making. So um, wow. As always, Adam, thank you so very much. Um, we love talking with you. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's a delight. That's Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We'll be right back. All righty. The conversations of the day are um, in our hands. They are yet before us, and we are the ambassadors of Christ and his kingdom in the world that he so loves. And so how are we going to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the conversations of this day? How are we going to bring God back into every conversation? How are we going to walk our faith out into the world that God so loves and do do so in ways that honor Jesus? Well, first, we're going to saturate our minds with the very Word of God. So if you haven't yet been in the Word today, let me encourage you to get some time in the Word of God. Um, and, and secondly, we're going um, gonna to set ourselves at God's liberty. We're going to say to God, I cooperate willingly. I submit. I yield to the active work of your Holy Spirit in my life right now, right now. Lord, bring me into greater conformity with who Christ is, whatever that looks like, whatever that means, whatever part of me needs to go in order that Christ could be exalted and glorified, that he could live in and through me this day, that I would be a vessel, uh, an, an agent, an ambassador, a tool to be used by God um, in the advancement of his kingdom purposes this day. That's my heart's desire. Um, I hope that's your heart's desire as well. We go forth together into the world that God so loves to advance the kingdom always and in all ways, in every moment, in every conversation, in every relationship. And it's such a privilege um, to be doing this together with fellow believers in Christ. It's such a privilege to be doing this today with you. We have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.